Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Sammy was recorded on July 28th, 2022. Hey, loves. Uh, my name is Sammy, and thank you so much for your uh, for your invitation and your introduction, Renee. Uh, thanks to everybody doing, doing the service tonight. I'm really grateful for you all. My name is Sammy, and I'm a very grateful recovering adult child of alcoholism and lots of dysfunction. Coming to you live from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, like I was, like I just said, I'm just gonna freestyle this. Like I like this is my first time ever sharing in an ACA meeting when I'm not when it's in a three minute time share. So let's just let's just buckle up, okay? Uh, <laughs> Ooh, so I'm just centering, and I just I would like to start off by saying, you know. Like a lot of other folks, you know, um, I come from, I came, I came from another 12-step program first. Um, growing up in rural Southeast Louisiana as a gender non-conforming assigned male at birth person and obviously very queer in the 80s was not an easy thing. On top of my parents being addicts and rageaholics and violent. There was a lot of violence at home. There was a lot of violence at school. I didn't, a safe place, I couldn't even imagine what a safe place was. A safe space was something completely foreign to me. Reading was a safe place. Someplace where I could be quiet and be invisible was a safe place. It was never safe to be me. Um, it always felt like, and, and I understand that I'm, it always felt to me like either, I got, I got one or two responses from people that I dealt with either at home or at school. Um, either I was invisible or I was the worst thing in the world. And, and, it, it, and it was either or. It, 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 that was a binary and I wasn't. <laughs> and that really messed with a lot of people's minds. And it gave them all sorts of feelings and it, and it made them feel really empowered to do all sorts of things to me. Um, and eventually I turned that knife on myself. Eventually I... I internalized all of that. I remember having suicidal ideation as, as young as like maybe seven or eight. I remember taking all those slurs and all of those hateful things that people wrote on my locker at school, that they called me to my face, that they spray painted on, on the blacktop in front of my parents' house. I took, I took all those words and I, and I said them to myself and I never stopped for the longest time because I didn't know how. I don't know if um, many of you are old. I don't, know, I don't know how old anybody is, and I will not presume to know, but the 80s was a tough time to be um, in the LGBTQ community, um, especially growing up in the rural South where the messaging was that God hates gay people and they didn't say the word gay people. Very few people did. Even the people that were supposed to be allies still kind of used slurs that we wouldn't use today. And it's wild for me to see how far the community has come. I grew up with no boundaries within my family. I never got, I don't have a coming out story. My parents, 
went into my room one day when I was not at home and found my diary where I talked about having sex with guy with with this particular guy up in their house, and then I had to live in a car. Like there was no coming out. It was just that's it. Um, and that was really hard at age twenty, um, with really not much else going on for me like that. And I was I was really good at certain things in school, but but I was never a standout. After about maybe the maybe the fifth grade, I think I remember I had gotten in. I remember I again I don't know if this if this if this was a thing for you at your schools, but in my uh, school we had something called a beta club, which was like for students who had like above a certain GPA. And I remember like getting into this and being really super excited about it. And then we had like an induction, like a, like like a ceremony uh, at my elementary school, my upper elementary school, and. On the way home, my dad started tripping out and it got really violent. It got really ugly. And he was like, you weren't, you weren't praying when you were supposed to be praying. You weren't, you were looking around when you were supposed to be praying before the Pledge of Allegiance. And I was like, so I never did well. I never did that well in school again. Like that, it just wasn't a thing for me anymore. And <clears throat> living in my car, I went wild. I didn't have any concept, and I, I think I think I've read this someplace in, in in our in our daily reader. Maybe um, that sometimes it's hard for us to plan for the future because we don't really see one. And I never could see a future. I never could. So living in a car at age nineteen, and living, you know, and actually, and by that point, like I grew up about thirty minutes outside of New Orleans. And then I, I, I mean, then I had to find some place to park my car, aka my house. Um, so I was kind of living in my car here in New Orleans and I found a community. I found misfits and rejects and people who were kind of damaged by, by the world. And they took me in and, and you know, for better or for worse, but, it, it, but sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was bad. A lot of times I, I just reenacted my family drama with these people that, you know, were probably going through their own stuff. I developed a pretty gnarly substance abuse addiction situation, uh, which I kind of managed for the longest time. Like I went to rehab at 24 after like getting really bad off on cocaine. And then, and then I kind of like, I kind of went back and forth. Like I was sober for a little minute. Um, and really I wasn't, I was, I was under what they call that dry high, you know? Um, I had found I had become very close with this woman who was my sponsor and um and she took me to her church and I was totally into it and it was one of these jumping up and down and screaming and hollering and praise it kind of churches and and I mean I I went to this church with her a bunch of times and eventually um I got even got baptized like dunked at this church and that day after that, she and I were talking and she said to me, you know, Sammy, there's only two real abominations in the Bible. And one is being a witch. and The other one is being a homosexual. And this church saved me from being a witch. So I think they can save you from being a homosexual. And I was so hurt and I was so betrayed 
And she gave me this book, and I'm going to call it Pray the Gay Away, but I don't think that was actually the name of it. And I read this book. And you know, not one of those stories in this book, because it was mostly like, it was looking at it, I was looking at it kind of retroactively. I think it was kind of like the big book of AA, where the back of it is like testimonials, right? But the whole thing was just testimonials. And not one of these things was, I'm not gay anymore. It was all, I still want to be with people of the same sex, but I'm not. But I pray for it, but I pray about it, and then I go have sex with my spouse, who also wants to be with people of the same sex. And I was like, this sounds like a living nightmare, and this is not what God wants for me. And if that's what God wants for me, I don't want nothing to do with, with him, with it. Not nothing, nothing, nothing. So I walked away from God. I walked away from the whole concept of God except as a, as a nemesis for a very long time. Um, around age 28, I was like, oh, I had, got, I had it up to here with clubs and raves. And I, at this point, like, I was like, I, I'm not going to say famous, but I was relatively, I was sort of like this like little New Orleans like celebrity club kid. If you can say New Orleans had celebrity club kids. I mean, it wasn't Party Monster, right? But it was because we didn't have a body count, but it was like that. It was that kind of a scene. It was that kind of a timeline. Um, and around age 28, I was like, this is you know, like, I, I kept on getting into trouble with the law. And there was nothing big, but it was, but it was, but I just wasn't moving forward. So I walked away from it all. And um, I actually, within a few months of me just walking away from it, I didn't have no kind of a program. I didn't have any program whatsoever. I just literally stopped doing drugs and started just working. Um, within a few months of that, I started dating somebody. I went on a, a, a national game show. I won $30,000. I was like, bitch life is fabulous. I, would, I got back into college because the first time out of college when I was 18, I majored in drinking games and casual sex. So they told me don't come back. But at age 28, 10 years down the block, I was like, oh, yeah, girl, you got this. And I was a super high achiever in school. Um, I put the drugs down. That was nothing. Um, I still smoked weed a little bit and drank once in a while. But, it was, but, I, but, it, but I managed it because the success became the drug. Those straight A's became the drug. The 4.0 was the drug. That was the high. That was it. And I mean, I, I, I didn't have to do very much to get all these accolades. Like I showed up, I did my homework, I made, I made flashcards, I took tests, and here's a scholarship, and here's a, here's a prize, and here's a trip to France, and here's a, you know, like, a, whoa, fabulous! Um, and here's tuition for your grad school, and, and I was a super high-achieving uh, student. My parents didn't come to any of my award ceremonies, though. Um, they didn't see the point in me getting all the, getting all this higher education. They told me that I was deliberately educating myself out of any possibility of gainful employment. And I was like, well, you're not the one paying for it. So how about if you shut the fuck up? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to read all this stuff. Trigger warning. I cuss a lot. Trigger warning. There's not a bleeper on here. I don't think, but you know, I'll, I'll, I will try to moderate if possible. I promise nothing. Um, but yeah, so, you know, 2009 rolls around, I've, I've got, you know, 2008, 2009 is when I got my bachelor's degrees and I got two of them. And then in 2011, I got a master's degree and 
then I went out into this quote unquote real world. And without the framework of school to provide like that, that reference point for success, I did not know. I, I went into free fall. I definitely went into free fall. Like I said, I was used to like just doing really to me was the bare minimum and getting flowers and getting roses and, and prizes and trips. And, you know, it was the same thing with, with the game show. I really just did the best that I kind of could. I wasn't, you know, to me, I was just doing the bare minimum and it was 30 grand. And it was this, it was that. And then once I'm just putting out 20 to 25 resumes a day and writing that many cover letters every day and crickets, crickets. I had no idea how to react except to go back to what I was doing when I was about 20, when I was living in my car and I needed to eat, so I sold drugs. I forgot to tell you that part of the story, but there you have it. I mean, that's a TLDR about it, right? Like, so I hit this kind of, this really weird, like, like midlife crisis, because at this point I'm like, mm, what, how old am I in, in 2011? I'm like in my late thirties at that point. And, I found I, I found jobs that I really didn't want to be doing. Like I, I majored in foreign languages. Um, I ended up working in um, an immersion language elementary school for a little while, which I loved the kids, but the but the, the adults I was like, y'all are fucking terrible. Um, like, and that was only for half a year. And then I started teaching at a, teaching Spanish at a community college, and that was terrible. The money was terrible. The students were awful. And, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to like, you know, some institute for uh, foreign language prodigies, right? Like I knew that wasn't going to be the, the student body that I was dealing with. But the students just, I could not, I was, I, they just did not care. And it was like this bell curve of students, you know what I'm saying? Like there were some who were high achievers. There were some who were native speakers. There were some who never showed up. And it was that kind of a thing. Um, and I didn't know how not to take that personally because I never actually trained to be a teacher. Like that wasn't my jam. Like that wasn't what I was looking to do with my foreign language degree. I thought I was going to be a translator. I thought I was going to be an interpreter. I thought because I was such a high achieving student, you know, the UN was just going to snap me right up or the Louisiana Supreme Court Association was going to be like, okay, girl, come on. And the, when I, when I applied for those jobs, they were so far out of my league as far as vocabulary and syntax and expectation and because i've never actually lived in a foreign country longer than you know a summer in france uh, or some time in barcelona um a lot of times those kind of positions wouldn't take me seriously and it's still you know it, it would just take me that few seconds just to kind of be like oh because my brain kind of it was was still working in, in, in across purposes but yeah so i ended up doing that for a while um, meanwhile, my sex addict side was in full effect while I'm selling drugs and making more money in one night than I was in a whole month at my job. And that's when things started to kind of spin. When I hit age 40 and I was and I was still and I was and I was and I was still selling drugs and I was still at this shitty job that I didn't like doing. Ugh. That's when everything started to really go downhill. I mean, you might say it was it was going down it was going downhill for a while before that, but that's I think the point where I I kind of committed to the path of my own self destruction, and that went on for a hot minute. Um, and all this like and, and this is all stuff that as I'm telling you all this, 
I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I've had some coffee. Ha-ha! <laughs> now, now, now that I'm in ACA, I can see where all of this, my, my ACA traits just coming up and coming up and coming up and coming up and me just medicating them and me just pushing them to the side and me just kind of trying, to, trying to do something that I really wasn't ready to be doing yet. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I got all involved with these fucking stupid drugs and these stupid drug dealers and... I got arrested and I kept using. All these other things kept happening. I kept using. And I kept on going until finally I was homeless on December 18th, 2018. And about, and I really was having like all this really off the hook suicidal ideation. And I was about to kill myself because it was a week from Christmas and I didn't want to live. I remember standing at a bus stop, actually kind of behind the bus shelter in front of this red light, waiting for a car to come by, waiting for the, for the light to turn green. So a bus could come up going fast enough that it wouldn't stop and I could throw myself under it. And my phone rang and it was somebody that I used to use with. It was somebody that I, that I used to do some pretty heavy drugs with. And they were still doing drugs kind of in their life, but not like in that moment. They were like, sis, are you okay? No, I'm not okay. I'm not okay at all. And... So I kind of gave them the rundown of what was happening. They were like, okay, girl, we're going to take you to the mental hospital. And from that point, you're going to go to rehab. And whatever you do with it from there is what you're going to do with it, girl. But that's, that's, that's the answer for you right now. And they were right. Uh, <laughs> as much as I never wanted to admit it, they were right. That was exactly the answer. I spent, so I spent 10 days in a mental hospital, which meant I was in Chris. I, was, I had Christmas in the crazy house. And I have to say, it was practically actually the best Christmas I had in a very, 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 very long time. I was safe. I was put up. Maybe I, I, wasn't, I wasn't around people who purported to love me, but hurt me at every fucking single turn. And whether, and I mean, that, and that was, that was a, a theme for my Christmases for the longest time, whether they were my family of origin or whether they were whatever collection of losers and misfit, misfits I had collected along the way. Because we were all constantly reliving our, 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 our family drama. Constantly stuck in that drama triangle. So I spent Christmas in the crazy house and um, New Year's at the rehab. And let me tell you something. That was the answer. I, um, I didn't go to rehab thinking I was going to get sober. I, I, I didn't. I was like, well, girl, whatever. I'll just get clean long enough. To where, I mean, to where when I get out, I can get really high again. Because at this point, my tolerance was way beyond all belief. I still don't believe it sometimes. But yeah, so at some point, I was like, well, maybe these people do have the right answer. You know, because I didn't go there looking to get sober. I, looked, I, I didn't have no place to stay. I needed a place to stay. I didn't have no food to eat. They had plenty of food. That's what I was there for. I actually was looking at my journal the other day from that period of my life. And I was like, yeah, no, I really don't want to be sober. I just want to be able to keep doing this successfully. You know, I want to be able to sell drugs and be, a, be, and be prestigious at work and pay my bills and do, and do all these things that, like, that I can't, that I'm, capa that, I, that I'm practically incapable of doing when, I, when I'm using like that. And so... I got out of rehab and I, and I, and I did this. I, I took the suggestions that the people gave me, right? I didn't come back straight to New Orleans. I went to this little no bears town in North, in Northern Louisiana called Monroe. 
And if anybody in here has ever been to Monroe, Louisiana, I'm terribly sorry. It's very much, North Louisiana is very much still the deep south like that. The Klan is real. Um, I think living in this little liberal bubble that is New Orleans, I, I, it's really easy to forget that the, like that kind of bigotry and that kind of thing is really still going on, but it's very real in that part of the world. But having said that, I got what I needed, what I needed out of Monroe. I needed, I needed to dry out a little bit. I needed to get in touch with myself. I needed to work on what it is to be sober. And it gave me that place. The recovery community there is very strong and very tightly knit. And, and I got what I needed. But when it, was, when it was time to go, it was time to go. Um, I moved into a sober, I moved into an option house up there, a sober living house. Um, and I still live in a sober living house. I came to New Orleans and I, and I moved into another sober living house uh, in November of 19. Of course, the following like spring is when the COVID happens, and the quarantine happens. And you know, you guys, I was really, really on the verge of a, of a very severe relapse. And I can't, and I, I think I, I think I came across on Facebook the number to a Zoom AA meeting, and I was like, "What?" And that saved my life, Sam. That saved my life right there. So I'm very grateful to this platform, uh, you know. And I, you know, you're going to hear me talk some shit about AA in a second, um, but I'm grateful for Twelve Steps for the framework because it's not really that I'm gonna, it's not really that I'm going to talk shit about AA, but I'm going to say I feel like a lot of times the way that my experience with the people who put it into practice tend to those, so a lot of people that I run into have tended to be very, very dogmatic about it and very, very judgmental about recovery. And, and I always say that to contrast it with ACA recovery, but I'll get there, put a pin in that. So yeah, the pa the quarantine happens. My parents who, by the way, I don't know if I, if I mentioned, I know I didn't mention this. Uh, my parents who have, at this point, you know, amassed pretty much unlimited money. Um, my parents in June of 2020 decided to move away from here and um, and sell their house down here where we grew up to go move into this house that they had purchased in Colorado so they could smoke weed all day. And my two sisters, which they're actually... They're my sisters, but I mean, technically they're my half-sisters because my mom was trying to trap a man into marrying her when she was 19, and she got pregnant with me, and then he said, oh, no, girl. Um, and he gave her some money to either get an operation or leave town. She left town. She came back to town when I was about uh, a couple days old, and then when I was about four months old, she met the man that she would later end up marrying who gave me his last name, which, by the way, is not Pat. So my two half sisters, sisters um, who know who do not live in this state, came down um, at the beginning of June of that year. And my sister Sarah, my middle sister, had, she suffered a lot with her mental health. Um, she was kind of oh, kind of up and down, and kind of woo. Um, she had lost her job. She didn't have her medicine. She didn't have her neither her her diabetes medicine nor her mental health medicine. She's a little bit wacky. Um, my parents wanted us to basically de-hoard their house. Oh, did I mention they're hoarders too? 
yeah, so they wanted us to like take whatever we wanted out of their hoard and help them declutter or whatever. And I, and I got there and they had been smoking weed. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I was like, you know what? Um, I would help, but I don't want to. <laughs> like, I think you're asking me for something that I am not in any position to do. And you, and you smell like a fucking Cypress Hill concert. We're outside. Like, how do you smell this loud outside? Because I know you smoke inside. So yeah, I'm not even going in the house. That's factually on a song, I think. Um, so that was in June. My baby sister, Diana, went back up to Maryland. My other sister, Sarah, went back to Austin, where she and her, her husband lived. Um, and in that August, my sister, Sarah, unexpectedly had a, an, um, a very devastating bout of non-alcoholic pancreatitis. And she was in a coma for several days and eventually she passed. At a given point, the doctors reach out, reached out to my, to my, to my parents and my sister, Diana and I, and, and our brother-in-law and put us on a conference call. And they were like, yeah, girl, this is not looking good. We don't think she's going to last. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to do life-saving maneuvers? And they were like, but she's probably not going to come back. And I don't know, my mother was on and on and on about the sanctity of life and, you know, at all costs. And I'm like, You're, are, are you stupid? Like, she's not coming back. Um, but at any rate, the following morning, Sarah had a, a cardiac event. And she never woke up. So I decided to go to Austin and be with her at the end. And my baby sister, Diana, and I both went there. We both had to cancel our jobs. We both had to come up out of pocket for plane tickets. I, I mean, neither one of, I think she might've been, might've gotten some PTO, but I've never had a job that had, has PTO. So, um, and then we had to get a hotel room and food and grand charge. Like it just ended up being a real expensive weekend. And we were with Sarah in her last moments. We spent her last day with her. We brushed her hair. We sang songs to her. We told her little stories. We held her hand as she passed. And I, my parents had said they were going to be there and they didn't fucking show up. Like the last time that I spoke to my mother on the phone before I left for um, Austin, she said to me, you know, Sam, if, 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 you're, if your daddy doesn't want to come, I'm just going to pack up my dogs and I'm, I'm going to start driving to Austin. So when I called her on Sunday night, and Sarah passed on Monday, right? So I called her on Sunday night from this hotel Wondering, like, do you like? And my call was to say, do you need me to get you a room here where we're staying, or do you have trace? Do you have um, accommodations lined up? Because in my mind, I think she's got to be about to pull into Austin. Because I looked it up, and it's about that many hours, right? But I never get to ask her this question because she tells me she starts talk, talking to me about the clouds in the sky and how pretty they are and how close she is to the sky how she sees my grandmother's face in these clouds and she tells me she's been she's been spending her day painting rocks that came out of the creek 
And that's when I included that she was still in fucking Colorado. And I was like, I have to get off this phone with you right now. I have to get off this phone with you right now. And yeah, that was the end of our interaction for a very long time. And so, like I said, the next day Sarah passed. And then Diana and I were just on fucking autopilot about it all. And, you know, I was, I mean, I, I but here's the thing. I was, I was never going to use. Using was never on the table for me. And I had plenty of opportunity. Like at that point, I'm, I think at that point, I'm like maybe just a little bit more than a year and some change sober. That was not on the fucking table. Like it just wasn't going to happen. And so I was redlined up to here. And I was very vengeful with my parents. I was very hateful towards my parents. I prayed for them to die. I did rituals. I lit candles. I said, I said a lot of prayers and, you know, when my dad's birthday rolled around and he was still alive, I was like, well, damn, I guess I have to heal now. And that's when I first came to ACI. That was when I first did an ACA online meeting, actually, I should say. Because I had done an ACA meeting back in Monroe, like an in-person meeting. And it was so raw and it was so real. And it was, because it was never, like, the, the whole time that, that, I, that I was, like, doing the 12, doing my 12-step work around my substance abuse, I always knew the bottom line of it was, was, was this ACA stuff. I just didn't have words for it. I remember the first time that I read the laundry list. at the, I, at the There was one of the little trifold pamphlets. Girl, let me tell you something. I just burst into tears in the middle of this meeting. <laughs> just tears. Just tears and tears to the point where I almost hyperventilated up in this meeting around these fucking people that I didn't even know. And it was too much in Monroe for me to deal with. Like, like that. I was so fresh in it. I, I, I was going to think I was two, two months into substance abuse recovery. And it felt like somebody had just taken, like somebody had ripped a scab right off my face. And I was too vulnerable. And I, it, 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 was, it was too much for me to do in person. So again, I'm very, very grateful for this platform. I'm very, very grateful that, to, to have found this tribe. I'm so grateful to the technology. And I'm even grateful to the fucking pandemic, because without that, I never, I, we wouldn't be here today. And that's one of the few times that, I, that I'm going to consciously say, not use an I statement, but we. But yeah, I bought the I bought the big red book. I bought Strengthening My Recovery. I got the workbook. And I started throwing myself into it all furiously, the same way that I'd thrown myself into my into my substance abuse recovery. And what I didn't realize, and look again, looking back on my journals from that time, I can see where I was beating myself up because it wasn't going as fast as what I thought it should go. And now that just seems so absurd to me. Like now. I've onboarded the idea, and this is one of the things that I love about ACA, is, is I, I'm not, I, I don't have the, the, the book, I have the book, but not in front of me. But I, the, the, one of the big takeaways from ACA for me has been that recovery doesn't have to be linear. It doesn't have to be a straight line to anything. Like, you, like, like I, get, I get to fall back. I get to have days where I'm just not as good. I get to have days where, you know, I do the affirmations and I say the prayers and I go to the meetings and I, and I journal my journal until my little 
hands are all crumped up and I still fucking hurt, you know? Um, but I don't have to act out. I don't have to hurt myself and I don't have to hurt anybody else about it. And some days I'm better, I'm better than others about not, about like, about like not hurting others or not, or not hurting myself. So far it hasn't been any, um, any substance abuse. I mean, I've been using substances since December the 18th, 2018. Um, but I also face um, disordered eating. So the other night, did I order an inside, did I order a, a dozen donuts at midnight? Yes. And I'm not ashamed. Did I eat a dozen donuts at midnight? No, I actually ate three. I was like, okay, yeah, girl, this is kind of this is kind of too much. And I gave the rest to my roommates, but <laughs> I gave myself permission to do it and not feel badly about it because it's 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 not the end of the world. Um the point when when I when I started coming to ASA meetings, right right after that, like my health markers were through the roof, my weight was through the roof. Um, and I'm going to talk about my health markers and not my and not and not the waistline because I don't think that's I, I think the health markers are more important. But I had another attack of pancreatitis because I, I had one previously. But I had an attack of pancreatitis right after um, right after I first started coming to ACA meetings in, in November 13, 2020. And when I went in there, they said that my um, my cholesterol was like 800. It's supposed to be under 150. Uh, my pressure was bad. My, I mean, diabetes through the roof bad. Um, like I had, a, I think my A1C was like a 9.2. Um, and in that period of time, I learned so much about self-care through ACA. And I'm, I'm not here to like, you know, I'm not trying to, trying to like give you some meal plan lecture like that. I'm, that's, that's not what I'm even trying to talk about. But I will say that the tools that ACA has given me have allowed me to look at myself with compassion and respect and, ha and, and, you know, and laugh at myself when I order a dozen donuts at midnight or, you know, not take it so seriously, you know, if, you know, if I fall, because we all get to fall, but, but we all get to come back up. It doesn't have to be perfect all of the time. That's been so long thinking I had to be perfect because I thought that I was so baseline fucked up that I could never do it. You know, I thought that God had cursed me with this, with, with being who I am. I thought it was a punishment to be single. But what ACA has given me is, is the knowledge that it's not. It's, it's a gift. It's a, it's a joy to be me. It gets to be a joy to be me. Um, I love this program for, for so many things. Um, and like I said, like I was saying earlier, mostly, mostly it's the self-compassion that, that, that it's given me. It's, it's given me the ability to have compassion for myself and, and, and compassion for others, which doesn't mean not holding them accountable. Like, so all, so all these things are kind of dovetailing in my life, right? So I live in a sober living house where part of the, part of the gig is holding people accountable. Um, and, and I still can be gentle with them and I can still not, I don't have to like base out on them because they, because they relapse or because, or, or. I, right, holding accountable doesn't mean I have to exterminate them, which I didn't know that for the longest time. Chris, go on, well, I, I, I wish I would have those uh, that laundry list in front of me, but it makes you cry. But being afraid of people and authority figures, right? Because because it was always an extermination. Personal criticism was always an attack. It wasn't that I thought it was; it actually fucking was. 
for the first umpteen years of my life. Um, and so I've, I've learned to recognize that in other people. Like, like I live, just like I think anybody, and I think that's one of the biggest jokes of ACA, uh, is that the longer you're in ACA, the more that you see how many people really need to be in ACA, especially like in the recovery community. Like, I mean, every, and I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to diagnose anybody, but everybody that I, everybody I live with, they belong in ACA child, and I'm the only one. <laughs> I got to live with seven people who would benefit immensely from ACA, and you know, and 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 if they get there, they get there, and and them getting there or not being there is doesn't it, like I do not. I'm not invested in that like I was um, previously. Like when I first got to ACA, I wanted to bring it to the people. <laughs> Just knew I was going to evangelize for you all, and I would save you all, and. Yeah, I don't have to do any of that. Like, I don't even have to save me. I just have to back down and get out of my own fucking way and let, let higher power take care. Because they do. Because they do. And I couldn't have believed that for the longest time. I wasn't ready to believe it. I don't even always believe it now, but more often than not, I do. Faith is, faith is, faith is something I struggle with. I mean, but it, but it comes, but, it, but it's coming. You know, and it's so funny. Like right immediately before this meeting started, my baby sister called me up in um up from Maryland, and she was telling me she's going she's going to her first ACA meeting on Sunday, and it's an in person meeting, and I'm so happy for her. You know, I really, I you know, and it, it took me a while to like to not mm, 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 like to not like fuss at her about you need to do this because I'm doing this and this is the way. Like, that was really hard for me to do, but that was that was something I had to learn, right? And she's been in AA for longer, for almost ten years now. Like she's been off the substance for a long time. Um, and like I'm a, I'm in this place right now with her. She and I are both kind of in this place where um, the thing I didn't tell you about what happened with my sister Sarah is that. Um, so after she passed, um, we had her remains cremated. And um, since then, we haven't been able to afford to bury her. Um, so I set up a GoFundMe, and my parents got really embarrassed about it. And so my parents paid, have, have paid Diana for the... the um, uh, for the headstone and for the, for the actual interment. You know, and and Diana got in touch. Like this is like the same. Like it's like my parents found out about this fucking GoFundMe, and within four hours, Diana called me up. She's like, "Look, our parents are super upset." And I was like, "Girl, I don't give a fuck how they feel." <laughs> I was like, "Have they given you the money for it?" She's like, "Well, yeah, I have you know enough money for the for the headstone." Okay, well, when you have enough money for all of it, that's when I'll that's when I'll change the GoFundMe. So, well, well, are you planning on paying them back with the money from the GoFundMe? No, absolutely not. I was like, if, if, if they give you the money, because I don't trust them to give you the fucking money, they give you the money, Diana, I will be more than happy to adjust the amount and, and just and whatever, whatever the number is left over on the GoFundMe will cover accommodations and meals and, um, and ground transportation and everything that I, that I need to go to, to the funeral. Because that was, that was already built into the number, right? 
And let me tell you something. We got the fucking money, okay? <laughs> like, my parents gave us the money. Um, and I'm not giving, you know, Diana's like, oh, like, acting like this is some, some great thing. I'm like, Diana, this is, this is baseline fucking minimum, girl. And it's been two years. Like, it's been two years. Um, so I'm kind of at this place in this moment where I am excited to go to a funeral. And this is totally new. Like, I've never heard of anybody being excited to have a funeral. But I am excited about it. I am excited to, for Diana to be able to put a period at the end of the sentence. Because this whole time since Sarah passed, her remains have been in Diana's apartment up in Maryland. Like, in a fucking plastic box. You know, like, oh, oh. Um, and I did a lot of work around the grief of all of this. And like, you know, some days are easier, easier than others. The grief of it is mostly, I, I'm not going to say it's done, but, but, I've, but I've learned how to manage it. I've learned how to cope with it. So far, it's been a while since it snuck up on me and grabbed me by my fucking throat. But that's not to say it won't. <laughs> but I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it to do that. I'm, I, you know, as, as, as ready as I can be. And, you know, Diana and I, were, Diana actually just called me up. The first thing that she wanted to tell me was she was, she was having a gratitude day. She was, so she spent the whole day having these gratitude bursts um, and feeling like, feeling like she's on that side of the, that, on the, 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 the pendulum swinging up, right? And she's feeling super grateful and having these moments where she's like, oh, wow, life is terrific. Things are good. And that's, and, and that's where I get to be today. And I don't, I mean, I'm not going to be here forever, but I'm damn sure going to enjoy it while I can. Um, so I'm super humble. I'm super grateful to be asked to, uh, to speak here tonight. I hope you guys have gotten something out of it. It felt kind of long and kind of rambly. And I know I have four minutes left, but I would just like to close it up by just by being, just by expressing to you, each one of you individually. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.